Come on in. Hello, you're Matt. Go right through that door, okay. all the way to the end. <laughs> In late May of 2020, my colleague Sophia Balakian came over for a socially distanced interview in my backyard. You can sit right over there with the It was the first in-person interview I'd recorded since Harvard shut down due to the coronavirus pandemic in March. And since stay-at-home orders had been put in place in Massachusetts, it was also the first time she had even been to someone else's house. You know, it would be one thing if this was a volcano that covered half of it, you know, or some kind of natural disaster, but this is something that could have actually been prevented had it been managed appropriately. And that's a really bizarre state to live in, I think. Yeah. So, so it feels like this like huge collective regret or whatever. A lot of stuff. Yeah. What's the funnest thing you've done since coronavirus started? Hmm. I've had some Zooms with my high school friends that have been really nice. Um, hmm. For many people living in the U.S., the coronavirus pandemic has been a disruption unlike any other. As someone who is in temporary residence at the moment, I learned firsthand what happens when a sudden crisis disrupts access to mobility. My misfortunes were, of course, mere annoyances in comparison with the travails of people hospitalized or killed by COVID-19. While the ongoing pandemic has brought death and disruption to millions of lives, these experiences still don't really compare with what so many millions of refugees of war have experienced since the creation of hard national borders over the past century. And as borders slowly reopen, Antibody tests or temperature screenings will probably be just a few more hurdles on top of the long list of barriers to movement that refugees and stateless people face. In this podcast, you'll be hearing about the ever-changing regime of surveillance, investigation, and testing that refugees must navigate when they seek to move. We'll discuss how seemingly well-intentioned policies aimed at helping displaced families can actually exacerbate and prolong the ordeal of displacement for individuals who have already lost parents, children, and loved ones. And our conversation will center on how definition of the family itself plays a role in restricting access to refugee resettlement. I'm Chris Grayton, and this is Ottoman History Podcast. This is just for practice? Basically. Okay. I'm Sophia Balakian. I am an assistant professor at George Mason University in the School of Integrative Studies in, in a concentration in social justice and human rights. Uh, I have a PhD in cultural anthropology from the University of Illinois. And I study refugee resettlement systems between uh, East Africa and the U.S., and primarily my research has been conducted in Nairobi, Kenya's capital, and Columbus, Ohio. Ohio's capital. Correct. <laughs> True. Sophia Balakian is working on a book provisionally titled The Fraudulent Refugee, Crossing Borders and Remaking Kinship in a Security Age. She studies how a rigid definition of the family is used to enforce refugee resettlement between the United States and one of the world's largest conflict zones. So the people that I worked with in Kenya primarily came from Somalia and from the eastern part of the Democratic Republic of Congo. And most of the people that I worked with were trying to access the resettlement system. The other sort of group of people that I was working with in Kenya are folks who work for the humanitarian agencies, um, mostly UNHCR and some of their partner NGOs. And then uh, people who are contracted by the U.S. State Department who do this first first level of screening for the U.S. government um, for resettlement cases who've been referred to them by organizations like UNHCR. In Ohio, I was working in one of the voluntary agencies that works with people who are arriving in the U.S. through the resettlement program. 
And so many of them were American-born, people who grew up in Columbus, and many others were people who came to the U.S. through the resettlement program and now we're working as caseworkers, interpreters, job counselors, things like that. Um, and then in that capacity, I was also spending a lot of time with people who were newly arrived, refugees who come to the United States, people who come to the U.S. as refugees are uh, entitled to three months of assistance from these organizations, from you know being greeted at the airport to all these other sort of logistical parts of setting up a life in a new country. And what was the primary reason why most of the people you work with became refugees and applied for resettlement in the first place? People living in Kenya at, who are seeking asylum are coming from a range of civil and international conflicts that are playing out within the East African region um, and the Horn of Africa. So. People in Nairobi who have come from Somalia have been fleeing um, the Somali Civil War, which began in 1991, and then a range of crisis situations that have ensued in the wake of that war, including you know, drought and famine, in addition to armed conflict. The same is largely true for people coming from Eastern DRC. Um, there's since the mid-90s, there has been a, a complicated international conflict that has largely played out in the eastern part of Congo. And um, a lot of the people I worked with came from a minority community, the Banyumurenge, who uh, have sort of, because of their um, association with Rwanda, their ethnic relationship to, to Rwanda and Rwandans um, have found themselves a persecuted community in that, within that conflict. In terms of why they're seeking resettlement, at a most basic level, Kenya and most countries within the region where people are seeking asylum do not offer any kind of path to citizenship. So people are living there in a kind of perpetual state of statelessness. So Kenya, for example, when I was conducting my research between, you know, the majority of my research between 2013 and 2015, there were about half a million people documented as refugees um, in Kenya. So we're talking about, you know, very large populations um, who, again, have no access to citizenship rights and, and whatever that may theoretically protect. Um, so many people live in camps and people who live in cities are living in pretty precarious uh, states. So a lot of people in the Somali community are living in um, female-headed households. In both Congolese and Somali communities, there has been, as one would imagine, a, a, a great deal of well, a great deal of death and disappearance and fragmentation of households and family units as they existed prior to these conflicts or prior to people leaving their home countries. So you see an enormous range of ways that people have remade their um, their social worlds. Um, people live in extended families. I knew a lot of young people who were living living together, um, you know, people who might be attending high school or maybe even finding a way to attend university classes. So that sort of late teen and early 20 age young people who, you know, didn't have any adults in their in their lives and would be living living together and sort of taking care of each other, single women who might also find one another at church or, or, or um, even at um, an NGO, and usually people from the same community who would then be living together. There's a lot of diversity in terms of sort of household composition in this context. Perhaps especially in the Somali community, women have played a huge role in terms of being the sort of heads of household and breadwinners in, in some of these spaces. Anthropological fieldwork often reveals social tensions, but the spaces where Sophia Balakian works are particularly tense. 
And that's because even though refugee resettlement organizations ostensibly exist to help refugees, the rules that govern resettlement put personnel and the people they serve at odds. For displaced people, the goal is often to find any means possible to escape a waking nightmare. For resettlement officials, the job is to determine which individuals will receive the few slots available for resettlement. Here's Sophia Balakian reading one of the many complex and evocative vignettes that appear in her work. They're messy encounters that reveal the dynamics at the heart of refugee resettlement. Grace sat behind one of several desks guarded by glass barriers. A computer was angled to her right, and a Somali interpreter, a young man named Abdiwali, sat by her side. People who had found their UNID numbers posted the previous week filled the noisy room, lining up according to their primary language. From 8.30 in the morning until 1.30 in the afternoon, we saw a constant stream of people, most of whom Grace told that they did not merit resettlement, that they should go to the camps. In the year following the 2013 Al-Shabaab attack on the Westgate shopping mall in an upscale Nairobi neighborhood, the Kenyan government had been cracking down on refugees. In March of 2014, the government launched Operation Usalama Watch, aiming to relocate refugees to its two camps, the Kakuma camp in Kenya's northwest, near the borders of Uganda, Ethiopia, and South Sudan, and the Dadaab camps near Kenya's long border with Somalia. But the operation did little to move refugees to camps and instead became a cover for extortion by police and paramilitary and detention in Nairobi jails, prisons, and in a large makeshift detention center in Nairobi's premier sports venue. In a brief moment between clients, Grace noticed a woman out of the corner of her eye. That woman, she said to me in a low voice, comes here all the time. She strips, she said, without explaining more. When the woman reached the front of the line, I could see her more clearly. She looked about 70. She wore a black abaya with pink flowers embroidered on the sleeves. She tells us that she submits her request via text message every Friday, but never hears back. I want resettlement, she says. I've been detained two times. I used to sustain myself selling coffee, but I can't anymore. She's describing a problem that has become ubiquitous in the wake of Usalama Watch. The woman tells Grace that she has been in Kenya since 1992, since the time of Bare, she adds, referring to the Somali president whose ousting ignited the decades-long civil war. She begins taking off her hijab, revealing a headscarf wrapped tightly around her head. Oh, wait, now she's going to take, start taking her clothes off, Grace whispers to me. But the woman goes no farther. All that is revealed is her hairline, dyed red with henna and the silver hoops from her lobes up to the top of her ears. Do you have any other problems, Grace asks. I don't have documents. I can't get a job. These are general problems, Grace says. Everyone has these problems. The woman goes on, looking increasingly distressed. She explains that a neighbor informed authorities of refugees in their building. One night at 2 AM, she was in the bathroom when she heard banging on the door. She locked the door, but they broke the windows. Who broke the windows, asks Grace. After some back and forth, she makes clear that it was the police. They tried to arrest her, she says, but another neighbor paid 5,000 shillings, about $50, for her release. This was a scenario that played out dozens of times daily during that year. Any other problems, Grace asks. I've been here for 23 years, the woman says, since the time of Bare, marking what must seem like a lifetime ago. Don't I have a right? I'm not eligible for resettlement. Resettlement is for very few people in very serious situations, Grace says. The woman begins to explain that she's been in Utanga and Kakuma refugee camps trying to express the long period of hardship. We have strict criteria, Grace cuts her off. If we submitted your case, the country would wonder why we had submitted it. What else happened to this person? Resettlement is not a right, Grace says. It's a privilege. So I, you know, I think that this moment helps sort of capture the sense for people who are trying to access this system of uncertainty, arbitrariness, um, and it really is the context in which 
people come to go to great lengths to try to figure out what will get me noticed, how do I tell my story in a way that's compelling, what can I say that will uh, get UNHCR to see me as someone worthy of resettlement to a country where I'll have access to citizenship rights or a path to citizenship. Um, and all that sort of strategizing becomes uh, known to the agencies as fraud. Um, and so this kind of context is really important to the story I'm trying to tell. The people in Sofia Balakian's work are enmeshed in an ever-complex international migration regime that is over a century in the making. Many Americans have ancestors, if not living relatives, who pass through similar trials. This is especially true for families like Balakian's. Prior generations were part of the first humanitarian crisis to confront the forerunner to the United Nations, that is, the League of Nations, which created new resettlement schemes and means of documenting refugees of the First World War. I know about this period primarily from family stories. I mean, certainly in terms of the legacy of the Armenian genocide and its survivors and descendants of survivors, yeah, I mean, my work is deeply informed by those stories, 100%. I mean, there's no way around that. And I think you have a, you know, you have a generation of diasporan Armenians who do various kinds of work. It's so, so often the case that their work, whether they're working, you know, in an Armenian context in some way, or they're not, like I am, um, that their work has been informed by those stories that they grew up with. I mean, it's kind of remarkable in my experience. So um, I think I think that's actually a really positive legacy um, that people have taken their family stories and turned them into questions. You know, for me, it was questions about the legacies of violence, the legacies of violence in families, the emergence and creation of national identities and national narratives that come out of um, these kinds of cataclysmic events. You know, and so I sort of brought those nascent questions to to um, my anthropology seminars as an undergraduate and those are kind of enduring questions of my life and uh, you know I, I, I remember asking these kinds of questions about what it meant for a person you know what it meant for a person what it meant for my great-grandmother and her kids to have this sort of bifurcated existence you know well, what did that mean for her? So those kinds of questions that I, you know, between her life in Ottoman Diyarbakir and, you know, Patterson, New Jersey. Um, so those questions really informed my academic pursuits. You know, because I was seeking answers to those questions in social science courses. Um, and so that kind of had, a, I guess, a, a kind of snowball or kind of building block effect you know you come with this question and you receive some kind of answer and you keep asking new questions I think that in my family the people who survived the genocide became really sort of iconic figures they became protagonists in stories of kind of epic proportions and so I think that in a way, you know, my interest in displacement and, and talking to people who have survived other tragic conflicts and people who have remade their lives in a radically new place is an effort to answer questions about those people, you know, however much one can never assume that you know, a person fleeing the Congo today has any, bears any resemblance to, you know, my great grandmother of fleeing the Ottoman Empire or fleeing, you know, Ottoman Turkey. You know, one is always sort of trying to piece together puzzles. And, and I suppose that is uh, one effort to, to answer questions that really can't be answered of this kind of uh, 
mysterious past and mysterious figures, and then to answer other questions. Armenians a century ago faced many of the same troubles as do refugees of war today. Many had lost parents or other family members. Many were separated from their family members in a chaotic displacement. Some were taken into other families. And Armenian women and children were frequently incorporated into Muslim families. Reconstituting families and displaced Armenian communities was a huge endeavor that we've discussed in other episodes of this podcast. International organizations played a role in reuniting people with their families and facilitating their movement. But at the same time, states were creating new barriers to migration. Armenians who survived the war found themselves in countries where, due to racially biased quotas, just tiny numbers of people would be granted immigration visas. Family ties provided one of the few legal means of circumventing the immigration quotas. As a result, the immigration regime of the 1920s and 30s fundamentally shaped the makeup of the Armenian-American community and how it developed. And at its core, it's the same immigration regime we live with today. At least according to the letter of the law, the immigration regime of today is less discriminatory than what migrants from the 20s and 30s faced. But it is much more scrutinizing. Resettlement agencies are not roving the planet for people in need of a new home because the demand vastly exceeds the supply. Rather, their job is to vet potential immigrants and determine who deserves the privilege to resettle. And definitions of the authentic family are central to these efforts. Balakian has devoted considerable energy to studying what the U.S. government defines as family composition fraud. The U.S. government defines family for the purposes of refugee resettlement as a nuclear family, and specifically a married couple with their biological children under the age of 21, unmarried. Right. So their kids are under under 21 and unmarried. Now, the actual composition of households and families and social networks in, you know, generally and anthropologists have long known this. Right. That the family is a far more complex and diverse entity than than um, this sort of bureaucratic definition that that the government is the U.S. government is offering actual family composition and household composition in these sites of refuge, right, is, is far more diverse and complex. Uh, but, but particularly after 9-11, the U.S. government became increasingly concerned with any kind of fraud and any kind of misrepresentation in the refugee resettlement program. DNA testing was instituted to verify kinship claims. And there are some avenues to the U.S. where there is some flexibility around this. But by and large, the nuclear family is the family um, for these purposes. So, you know, what, what we have seen uh, when, when DNA testing was introduced is a whole range of impacts on the family or impacts on people's individual lives. So, for example... A lot of people, a lot of young people are living with extended families. Maybe you are living with your um, aunt and uncle um, and, and their biological children. Perhaps you are li- you are, your biological parents were killed and you're living with neighbors with whom you fled. Maybe you were very young when that happened and you actually don't know that you're not the biological child of the family who you live with, right? You're family. Um, So what happens with genetic testing is that the possibility to keep these units intact um, really falls away. And so you have um, young people, a couple, you know, a couple different things happen or many, many different things happen. You know, one thing that is um, of concern is that a family may make the calculus, we have this opportunity, if we include this member of our family, our chances will be 
ruined. And so um, we're going to have to make other arrangements for them. And that, of course, when that family leaves and goes to another country, that causes an enormous disruption in the life of that person who's left behind. Another thing that happens is that, you know, DNA testing can um, reveal really painful family secrets and, and um, uh, around infidelity or rape orphanhood. And again, um, in some communities that I worked with, it's really, um, it's, it's really taboo to be an orphan. And so people go to great lengths to incorporate a child into their family. You know, they use the names of the family. Um, they may not even, again, know that they're not biologically related to that family. So um, again, it seems that many people are actually choosing not to go forward with their cases if they know um, something that will really rupture the social world they live in will be revealed. Family composition fraud, this term that I you know, learned through the course of my research, is defined as any kind of misrepresentation of someone on your case. And case composition is essentially a family, right? That's how um, that's how refugee resettlement works, resettling people as, part, as a part of a family. And so another thing that seems to have been quite common prior to DNA testing and prior to 9-11 when the U.S. government became quite a bit more stringent in terms of its screening of refugees in, in the refugee resettlement process um, was that, you know, people would use this system strategically for their own ends. For example, um, a young person, you know, a young man in their 20s, their family might pay a family with a case to take them on as if this person was their teenage son, for example. That was another sort of common thing that was happening. I mention that because I think it's also y useful to note that not only is it inextricable to the pro to to a, um, to civil war to violent conflict that families are disrupted and dispersed um, you know families that may not have mapped onto a nuclear family model anyway you know prior which is important as well um, but you know that the process of uh, living through a war and fleeing one's home necessarily means, you know, very typically means losing family members, having one's social universe be disrupted. These kinds of spaces, communities of displaced people in cities and in refugee camps, you know, the very nature of that um, space is a space of reconstituting a social world but that means, you know, reconstituting a social world in whatever way one can for people's basic social, emotional, psychic, and physical needs. But, you know, it also is a context in which, you know, people necessarily make use of whatever resources are available. And refugee resettlement was a really good opportunity for people to say, hey, you know, we're in a desperate situation. We can send our son uh, with this family. You know, we'll invest some money in that. And obviously that family is also saying, you know, we're about to start a new life with a large family in the United States. We could use this money. Um, we'll take them abroad and, you know, our son now can be a breadwinner for us and send remittances back home. Um, so these were calculations and investments that people were making. That's also sort of an inextricable part of these, these kinds of spaces. And other scholars who have written about humanitarianism have long showed that people necessarily make use of these systems and resources in any way that is advantageous to them. And that is another thing that has, much to the U.S. government's relief, been uh, sort of eliminated by, by um, processes and technologies like DNA testing. Do you know about, though, like the numbers on that? Like for every case of some that type of scenario, how many cases would actually just involve someone who was taken in by a family 
a cousin who became a brother and that kind of stuff? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I mean, I should say that I don't really know numbers. Um, but I should say that, you know, a lot of the people that I spoke to were really adamant, you know, people on the sort of NGO humanitarian side. Some people would say, you know, a lie is a lie. And everyone in that family knew that Ahmed is not our brother. He's our cousin. And you said he was your brother. And that's a lie. And that's fraud. And your case is closed. Period. Right. Um, And other people would really insist that's not what the U.S. government is trying to root out. Actually, you know, we want real families. And this is a phrase that people often use. We want real families, you know, who have affective bonds, who are economically dependent on one another, you know, in this sort of, you know, common sense way, right? Um, we want those people to stay together. People just have to be upfront and honest, right? So you you heard different kinds of things about how even what one might think of as the most benign um, forms of misrepresentation were perceived. That's from the enforcement side. On the other side of the equation, you mentioned that this affects the decisions that families yeah. that however you define them yes. make when applying. Yes. Yeah. And 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 I think this is also I think this is also one of the sort of complications in the very well-intentioned motivations and and discourses of of people who work in the humanitarian arena which is that you know we don't want to really separate real families we want to keep them together but the reality is that you have a system in which there is you have a system and I hope that the piece I read kind of gives some sense of why that is that inherently breeds widespread mistrust and so People trying to access these systems, what I found in my research was that people really feel in the dark. They don't feel that they have a handle on how these systems work, um, how to access them, and that's by design. And I think a lot of people would like to say that's not the case, but you know, my understanding is that it is, right? Um, there's this idea that if we if we keep people as confused as possible about how this works or or we let them in on as little as possible, we will be able to control so-called fraud. We will be able to control who, um, you know, receives this benefit and will keep the frauds out. You know, so for example, I you know, someone once told me, um, someone in an NGO who had worked in this system for a long time once told me, once we resettled 70 young men and made a big noise about it because then people started thinking, oh, maybe it's not just single moms who, they, who they're who they trying to assist, you know, just to sort of keep people on their toes, just so people don't think they know what story to tell to get them in the door. Um, so there, there, there has been a, there have been intentional efforts to keep people ignorant about how things work and people feel that deeply. So, you know, you can say, you know, just tell us that this is your cousin and not your brother. Um, but in this context, you know, and we'll help you. But in this context, that kind of information coming from an organization that people do not trust um, really doesn't have a lot of weight. And so coming back to the genetic testing yeah. question, the DNA tests, you said it's had a chilling effect in that people are choosing not to apply. So DNA te- there was a DNA testing pilot program in 2008, which showed widespread so-called fraud, right? Showed that as many as 80% of families um, had at least one member who was not who they said they were. And after that, the, ho- the whole thing, refugee family reunification program, not all of resettlement, but the whole family reunification program was suspended. And four years later, it reopened in 2012. And I was, you know, doing the the bulk of my research between 2013 and 2015. So the program was just sort of starting to get off the ground again during my research um, with DNA testing as a permanent component. And 
when I was working in Columbus, what really interested caseworkers and people working in the system who, who really are advocates for refugees um, was that nobody was being denied on the basis of DNA testing, right? So you went from a period, you know, a pilot program that had 80% so-called fraudulent to the program reopens and no one's being denied because of genetic tests, which suggests that people understood how it worked and were not applying for the program um, if they knew or had any suspicion that they were going to not pass. The attacks of September 11, 2001 reframed American immigration policy. Immigration came under the jurisdiction of the newly formed Department of Homeland Security. While foreign-born terrorists have proven a much smaller threat to American lives than, say, the coronavirus, the policies associated with the U.S. war on terror created a climate in which officials subjected Muslim refugees in particular to a high degree of scrutiny for purported security purposes. At the same time, because of recent conflicts, many of which have directly involved or been caused by the United States, Muslims make up a disproportionate segment of the world's refugee population. So I want to also ask about the context of, for the U.S., the war on terror, because this is a program and a, a refugee crisis actually has played out in that same context, the war on terror. We don't think of East Africa as the primary arena, but this is a global thing, and it's certainly part of it. Um, so in looking at the cases you've looked at, this involves international organizations, you know, but how uniform is it across the globe? It, does the fact that many of the refugees are Muslims play a role in how they're screened or processed? Um, is it consistent? Is it actually wildly inconsistent? Does it change everywhere? What's the overall picture and how does, and how does it fit into the global picture? Yeah, so from my knowledge, you know, I remember um, interviewing a guy who put it to me this way. There is not a one-size-fits-all security screening mechanism. It is highly dependent on the demographic of the person, and that is highly dependent on their nationality. And um, people, uh, Muslims and people from Muslim-majority countries, particularly those that have um, organizations that are listed as terrorist organizations by the United States, um, undergo more rigorous uh, security screening. And Kenya is actually a really interesting place to see that play out and to talk to people who work in this field because you have such a diverse, such diverse communities coming to Kenya to seek asylum and to access resettlement um, to places like the U.S. and elsewhere. So you have you have people from Christian majority countries, um, you have um, people who are part of Muslim minorities in Christian majority countries, and then you have people um, from, you know, pretty uniformly Muslim countries like Somalia, where there, there are organizations deemed you know, very problematic terrorist organizations in the, in the view of the U.S. government. Um, so you see people have a much longer wait times I don't believe there to be any publicly available data on rejection rates by nationality. What I do know is that um, officers from Citizenship and Immigration Services who are under Homeland Security who do the final interviewing of every person coming to the United States through the Refugee Resettlement Program, um, those people have no incentive to say yes if there is any doubt in their mind that this person, or, or if there is any um, cause in their mind for concern that, that a person might pose some risk, you know. Um, so their tolerance for risk is very low from, from my understanding. And so um, a young man from Somalia is much more likely to be, um, based on that knowledge, a young man from Somalia would be much more likely to be denied. But certainly people's processing times are, are, are much longer. And the, yeah, the securitized con context also ratchets up the scrutiny of everyone who's sort of in the system in these places, right? You know, so someone once put it to me this way, on um, 
prior to 9-11, which really did restructure along with many, many other things, the U.S. Refugee Resettlement Program, you would interview someone on Tuesday and they would leave on Friday. That's probably an exaggeration. But now, not only do people go through years of interviews within the U.N., but they might wait for two or three or four years from the time they are first interviewed by someone who's contracted by the State Department to um, departing for the United States. Um, So it's had an enormous impact on the duration of this process, um, and especially so from people who are from countries that are flagged by the U.S. government. And, you know, this is, so I conducted my research during the second Obama administration, um, and that was true then under the Trump administration um, and the, the you know, Muslim ban, the disparity for people from the countries that are listed in that executive order has just increased a hundredfold. So your field work is almost history in that regard, that you were talking about how a system functioned just a few years ago but is now radically different. And that's also a testament to how the rules are always changing Absolutely. for the families and keeping them uh, in a difficult situation. Absolutely. And during you know my research five plus years ago, numbers of refugees coming into the U.S. were at, at a relatively high level, um, you know, relative to U.S. history. And 70-ish thousand people were coming to the U.S. every year. And those quotas, which are, or, or that ceiling, which is set by Congress every year, I mean, now it has shrunk. I mean, now, today, <laughs> during the pandemic, obviously no one is coming to the U.S. But even before that, numbers across the board had shrunk. And numbers for people from places like Somalia had basically gone to, to close to nothing. I asked Balakian to help us make sense of the cruel migration regime that seems to prevail. Was it merely the definition of the family that needs to be tweaked? Or is there a more fundamental flaw in the way that kinship shapes refugee resettlement policy? It might be even more extreme than you know. And, and, and I want to just note that single people are in a really bad state in this um, context. I wouldn't say that single people are never resettled, but for a couple of specific reasons, the UN really favors resettling families for a logistical reason, which is and the UN and sort of NGOs that do parallel work, finding people for resettlement and refer- referring them to host governments. One, it's a lot easier to resettle six people as a family and interview them once than six individuals and interview them six times. So there's this very sort of um, instrumental calculation that's done. The other is that, you know, and as you're noting, right, there's this sense that, um, you know, a family is a worthy recipient of humanitarian aid. We want to keep families together. We want to support them. Perhaps even they're seen as more um, assimilatable Um, when they come to the United States, um, that they, you know, being a part of a family unit makes you less um, uncertain or threatening in some way. Um, I think that that is also at play. So I think that that there's some inherent problem with that. But the question also reminds me of a conversation I had with someone who worked both on the U.S. government side of things and then on the NGO side, you know, and we were talking at great length about what makes someone eligible for resettlement, which is actually a rather complicated question because there's the answer to that question in, in sort of theory and on the books and then how it plays out in reality. And, um, you know, we were talking about all the ways in which someone might or might not be seen as worthy for, you know, a benefit that is only accessible to fewer than 1% of refugees worldwide based on, and that's probably even less today than it was five years ago. So, you know, it's a kind of triage system in a way. Um, And there's 
an enormous amount of effort that goes into sort of making those determinations. And, and we were talking about all this and, you know, he's devoted two decades of his life to this work. And he says, but you know what, honestly, sometimes I think, should this just be done by lottery? Um, because all of these people who've been registered by the UN as refugees are refugees. At some level, they're all, they're all sort of eligible by whatever, by the criteria that in theory is at work um, to be resettled to a country where they have a path to citizenship. So I think it, I think the question you've asked and, and this moment in my field work, you know, it, it brings up the sort of perverse logics that people are forced into, um, you know, as humanitarian agencies are trying to determine who is the most vulnerable, the very most vulnerable, because there's such a tiny uh, number of opportunities available, you know, and it, it sort of brings to light the absurdity of the fact that all this effort goes into determining who is worthy, who is, but who is really worthy, not this person, you know, um, not these 99 people, only this, this person, because in theory, you know, do, do these organizations not basically believe, and do the people who staff them not basically believe that every person should have a right to be protected by citizenship and have access to the rights that citizenship in theory provides mobility employment i'm losing the word i'm thinking of but you know uh life liberty in the pursuit of happiness life liberty in the <laughs> pursuit of happiness um so you know the, the you're, the question you ask reminds me even beyond the question of family and kinship. You know, these organizations go to enormous length to protect and resettle the most vulnerable. And that's, that's, that's humanitarian work at a certain level. And in doing so, needs to find a way to deem the rest sort of frauds and ineligible and, and, and unhelpable. But when one sort of steps back from that whole system, we can also see how deeply troubling it is that then 99% or more of people who flee across a border are then left perpetually as refugees um, without citizenship rights, often for the rest of their life. And sometimes for the future generations as well absolutely the yeah. refugee status is passed on across the generations absolutely absolutely uh, on that note i want to ask a question uh that that takes a step back a little bit you've seen how it works on the ground in kenya and you've also seen how resettlement works on the other side in columbus ohio living here in the united states you also see how the issues uh regarding refugees and immigration more broadly are discussed Normally, when I do interviews about migration, I say, let's leave aside the xenophobes. Let's leave mm -hmm. aside the people who want to malign migrants, sure. who hate others, who right. want to keep them out for various reasons. Right. Let's focus on the people who think they're being empathetic or want to be empathetic, who think it's necessary that refugees be helped uh, and want to send the message that mm -hmm. our society should be open to migration. Right. Whether looking at the media or how these organizations operate, mm -hmm. based on your experience, and particularly with regard to the, the images of migrants, the, the way in which they're narrated and described, depicted. What are some of the troubles you've seen, uh, in, let's say, in media coverage yeah. or uh, other arenas where this discussion is happening? A lot of the representations of refugees in this country, particularly regarding you know, sympathetic portrayals of refugees, particularly those who are already here in the United States, either implicitly or explicitly, and I'm sure often without um, folks necessarily being, being aware of this, it really propagates a kind of American exceptionalism, a American dream narrative. And I think in this political moment where refugees are by a particular political slice of our national community, really maligned and detested. I think that a lot of people um, see the need to write 
stories about refugees as advocates for refugees. And that often, those are often very, very simplistic stories. So I think, you know, you often see stories about refugees as revitalizing, uh, dragging economies. You see stories about um, assimilation. And so it's sort of the refugee as, and, and this may not be getting to part of what your question gestures toward, but I, but, but one of the first things I think of is, you know, the idea that refugees, you know, the good refugee serves our national narrative. And that, you know, the good refugee in the end is, you know, supporting a local economy. You know, they're learning English, they're becoming pillars of their community and and so forth. So there's this idea that they are and must be the sort of grateful recipient of this opportunity. Um, I remember a friend of mine who came to the U.S., came to Ohio through the resettlement um, program, said, you know, I get really tired of people saying, you must be so happy to be here. And I think a lot of the things we read and hear and, and just sort of broader discourses about refugees in this country assume that this is where people want to be, you know, that this is that that people are living out the American dream. And this, you know, on one hand promotes a national narrative that is not true, because, of course, people who come here, you know, people in the United States in general, and certainly people who come here um, through the resettlement program, um, encounter enormous hardship to 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 rebuild a life here in a country that is often hostile to them. But it also, I think, really obscures uh, people's real desires and motivations and their relationship with their home, their homeland. You know that y- you know that this is the kind of final um, dreamed of resting place. And in a sense, you know, in a way that that may be true, um, but also a lot of people um, that I worked with, you know, part of their great desire um, to have U.S. citizenship is also because they want mobility, not because they want to come and stay and plant their feet and never leave. It's because precisely they are a member of a global diaspora because they actually someday want to go home um, and they want to be able to travel there freely. Um, so people have these sort of diverse um, and, and complicated um, dreams and desires and motivations. And what we often hear in this country is a kind of um, narrative that um, imagines America in a certain way. For more about Sophia Balakian and other material related to this episode, visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. That's also where you'll find our ongoing series, Deporting Ottoman Americans, which explores the stories of Ottoman-born migrants who faced deportation from the United States during the Great Depression. I'm Chris Grayton. Thanks for listening, and join us next time on the Ottoman History Podcast.